Hi, this is Michelle Specht. I play Dr. Elise McKenna on Star Trek Continues. Oh my God, I'm totally fangirling right now because I just met Dan Davidson and Bill Smith of the Trek Geeks podcast. Oh my gosh, they are amazing. Coming to you from Podfleet Command, where we just bought a boat. It's the biggest little show this side of the Alpha Quadrant. Welcome, everyone, to Trek Geeks. We're so glad you're here. Thanks for downloading and listening. We are truly grateful. This is episode number 133, and I'm your co-host, Bill Smith. We um, we have a great topic on on tap today. It's it's one of those things that we've been looking forward to talking about for a long time, and you know, with so much Star Trek... You know, you kind of forget about all of the great things you want to talk about in the 700 plus hours of, of such a storied franchise. And of course, by we, I do mean my co-host and I, I'm glad that he can't change shape or perhaps he should be able to because then I wouldn't have to look at his face. <laughs> he's, he's the very bland and uninteresting Dan Davidson. Dan, welcome aboard, buddy. Well, thank you, sir, for I must say the wheel has come full circle and I am here for all the world is a stage. See, I do know a little bit of Shakespeare. A little bit, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If not for the internet, I'd be in trouble, though. I'll tell you what. <laughs> Thanks, Google. <laughs> exactly. No, it's good to be here. Looking forward to the conversation. And like you said, there's so many things to choose from. And we're coming around to something that uh, I think uh, we're excited to talk about. And I'm looking forward to the conversation, as always, with you, my good friend, Bill. Wow. <laughs> Have you been drinking before the podcast today? I can't say that with a straight face. I know, I know. <laughs> well, why don't you uh, reveal to the folks playing the home version exactly what our topic is today? Well, um, it is one of the more popular Star Trek films with the original series, and it is sadly the last one with the original series. We're going to talk a little Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, today. I'm going to deep dive into it, uh, talk about the plot, talk about the characters and the actors, and they pulled in some good ones for this one, I gotta say. I'm not gonna lie to you, Bill. No, don't lie, Dan. The listeners hate it when you lie. You're my best friend. Stop lying, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> no, I agree with you entirely. I mean, I remember the the run-up to this movie. I, I think I was more aware of what was going on with the film um, with, with this one more than I was any of the others. You know, it wasn't quite the Internet age yet, but I feel like I read more magazines that talked about this movie. I felt like that I got more information from from the Star Trek communicator itself mm, about oh, this yes. movie. I remember you know, that great magazine that um, that was part of the Star Trek fan club for so long. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the time this movie actually premiered and it premiered a week early. Um, right. I was I was ready. I was stoked. I was so stoked. So I'm looking forward to talking about this today. Um, 
Dan, we may have listeners that are looking forward to talking about this this particular film and may want to send us their thoughts. Um, how might they get those to us, my friend? Well, uh, it's actually easier than ever to get in touch with us. All you need to do is head right on over to trekgeeks.com slash contact, and you'll find a whole plethora of ways to send us thoughts. And uh, And we want to hear from you folks, so uh, please do. You can leave us a voicemail. You can Skype chat us. You can fill out the contact form to leave us a message. Uh, and there's just, you know, all kinds of different ways, like I said. So, plus, don't forget, you can click that nice big blue button on the right side of the website and leave us a voice message using SpeakPipe, and we'd love to hear from you. And uh, hey, you know what? Wouldn't it be great if you just want to ride on over to our official Facebook group, Camp Kittermer, and join and uh, take part in all the great discussion that's going on over there? All kinds of Star Trek talk, Star Trek pictures, some polls. You may allegedly see some uh, lip syncing going on from Bill and I from our commutes home from work every day. Maybe check it out. And, uh, you know, you're going to get early access to the episodes of the Trek Geeks podcast. So that's always a plus by being a member. It's very easy to do. Head right on over to facebook.com slash groups slash Camp Kittimer. And one of our wonderful admins, Heather, Jackie, or Dan will let you write in to join in on all the fun. But please remember that any comments or messages you leave us in any of these places may be used in a future episode. Bill. Wow. That was almost like movie trailer guy. Well, I try, try. That, um, that's well, thanks a lot, Dan. Hey, we got to go back to the sports announcers at some point. Because, next I mean, week. <laughs> next week on an all new Trek Geeks. <laughs> You're uh, independent, independent Star Trek, Star Trek podcast. Yeah. Yeah. I think, Somebody says that later. I, well, you should find out who that guy is because he's pretty good. I'm going to talk to him. Dan, it's time for the news from treknews.net. Spanning the Alpha Quadrant. For all the news on all the Star Treks, yo. It's treknews.net. Online at treknews.net. And Dan, up first... So this coming weekend, it looks like there's going to be an awesome looking panel for Star Trek Discovery at WonderCon. WonderCon. I just love the name. I could just say that all day. This week on WonderCon. Yeah, it's a special panel that's going to be taking place at that convention, WonderCon, which is going to be in Anaheim, California, this coming weekend as this episode drops. So Saturday, March 24th at 3 p.m., if you're going to be at WonderCon, you want to uh, mark your calendar and head to the correct room for an awesome discovery panel of behind-the-scenes kind of stuff. It's a whole uh, – oh, what's the best way to, to talk? The making of Star Trek Discovery panel, I guess, is the best way to put it. The panel will consist of many folks who work on Discovery, including the wonderful Gretchen Berg and Aaron Harberts, as well as several others. And the coolest thing about this, I think, is that the panel will be hosted by the amazing Mary Chifo. That's Laurel to you and me, Bill. And uh, I got to say, I think she's been added to my must-have photo op uh, at STLV this coming August. I'm in complete agreement with you. 
I, uh, I, I hope they, ha- I hope that happens. That's gotta happen. If not, uh, I'm going to be a very sad Trekkie. Um, although I gotta say, I mean, I get to this conventions in Anaheim, mm-hmm. but I'm going to be honest. If I'm in Anaheim and I have the opportunity to go to WonderCon or to go to Disneyland, <laughs> I think we know which one I'm going to choose. Well, yeah, but then you also got to think, you know, some of the people out there in Anaheim go to Disneyland a lot, so they may not have the, you know, the excitement to go there. And some of these people may not be able to get to STLV. So you got to pick and choose. Now, personally for me, if I'm going to watch The Wrath of Khan with Shatner Q&A or go to Disney World, I'm going to Disney World, but you're going to see Shatner. <laughs> that's only because I'm not flying across the country to go to Disney World. Yeah, that's true. That's true, too. Um, but again, I'm just talking about me. I'm not talking about anybody else, uh, you know, about Disneyland and Anaheim. Um, that's just my own personal take. Um <laughs> Dan, next up in news, uh, it looks like Star Trek is finally at the final frontier. It is indeed, yes. Discovery uh, is now in outer space, if if that's a good way to put it. Uh, last week, Netflix hosted their annual Hack Day event, which sounds a little creepy, but uh, whatever. Um, and that gives their employees a chance to take a break and experiment with some new technologies. So one of the experiments that was done was to actually launch an iPhone playing Star Trek Discovery into outer space, which is very, very cool. Uh, the phone was attached to a meteorologist. I can't even say this word. I knew I was going to screw it up. Meteorological. Weather balloon? Yes, a weather <laughs> balloon. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and it actually reached an altitude of 115,000 feet, which is about 22 miles. So, uh, yeah, there you go. It's um, it's out there. It's in space. It's floating around. It's pretty cool. Well, and I guess there were little heaters attached to the battery so the phone didn't freeze up so that they could actually get Star Trek Discovery in space. That's very which cool. Which is, is pretty neat. I'm not going to lie. It is. It's very cool. Although the, the irony here is that um, the, I think Hack Day is it happens with their U.S. staff and Netflix is only available <laughs> uh, for Star Trek Discovery outside of the United States. So I guess maybe that was the hack. <laughs> that, there you go. Oh, they, they hacked into their own stuff. That's very cool. That's it. That doesn't seem like much of a hack. <laughs> probably not. No, yeah. Yeah. no, probably not. But it, I got to say, it's pretty cool to see a, a photo of that scene with Sinequa Martin Green in it, you know, with the earth, the curvature of the earth behind it. It's it's pretty, pretty cool. Unbelievable. And Dan, uh, looks like there's more discovery news here back here on Earth. And there are some nominations. There's some nominations, and these are pretty big nominations, I think. The 44th Annual Saturn Awards are coming up soon, and Discovery has been nominated for five of these prestigious trophies, which is amazing considering it's the first season. Uh, These nominations include Best New Media TV Series, Best TV Actress with Sonequa Martin-Green, who you just mentioned a moment ago, Best TV Actor with Jason Isaacs, Best Supporting TV Actor with Doug Jones, and Best TV guest star with Michelle Yeoh. So all great uh, names and associates of Discovery. Can't wait to see if they win it. And the other cool thing about this, Bill, is Discovery only trailed The Walking Dead in the amount of nominations, which is very cool when you think Walking Dead has been on so long. They garnered seven nominations, and Discovery is a very respectable five right behind them. I thought that was great. That's pretty fantastic. And the Saturn Awards are nothing to sneeze at, especially – you know, in, in, in this genre. So I, <laughs> sorry, I sneezed at it. Did, did you just make the world's worst joke? No, no. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, I think you did. I think Sorry, you did. I'm trying. Uh, especially considering, you know, the fact that, I mean, there are lots of, there's lots of programming in this genre now. You know, it's not like there's one or two series that have some sort of science fiction or, or, you know, a fantastic element to them. They're all over the place these days. And, and, and clearly discovery stands out among them, I think. Yeah, I got to agree with that. It's really amazing to see how this type of 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 new media has exploded over the last couple of years. How many Netflix series and Amazon series and Hulu series are we seeing crop up? And they're really great. And to see something like Discovery, which is so amazing on CBS uh, All Access, have this type of recognition when you have all of these other shows really shows to the to the popularity and the and the perfection that dis- the discovery people have done in that first season. I can't wait to see if they win any of these. It'd be awesome to see a sweep. Same here. I uh, will keep an eye on it, of course, and let people know. Um, we'll keep our fingers crossed. And then, Dan, lastly, it looks like we're going to talk a little Star Trek online because there's uh, there's there's some really cool things that people who play Star Trek online can do now. Yeah, last week uh, we talked, Bill, about how you started getting back into Star Trek Online recently. Um, not sure if you have any update. I know we had kind of a busy week uh, last week. Uh, have you played at all, or are we still waiting to get started? I have not had the opportunity to play in last week, so um, keep our fingers crossed for the next week once my own call ends. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that's a good idea. Yeah, I haven't either. Um, sad to say, but I do have some good news about people who are playing Star Trek Online, and that is uh, this past week a new product became available for players of Star Trek Online, and you can get your own personal starship that you use in the game turned into an actual model that you can display at home or at work or wherever you want. Thanks to, you know, this amazing 3D printing technology just keeps getting better and better. Uh, A company called Mixed Dimensions has partnered with the makers of Star Trek Online to offer these ships, but uh, better get your Quatlus and your Gold Press Latinum out because they are not cheap. Prices start at around 200 bucks and can go as high as 350 if you want a special hand-painted master artist version of your own personal starship. Uh, for more details and a special limited time introductory price, just head right on over to gameprint.net, Bill. Print your ships. <laughs> yes, indeed. I knew that was coming. I had a feeling that we would hear from the Admiral again this week. You know, I, I love I love Star Trek. I mean, I love Star Trek ships, but I don't. Two Hundy seems like a a, a a lot of money for a three D printed model, unless it's like eighteen inches long. Um, I I got a hard time springing for that. I do too, because one of the things I believe you can do in the game is as you progress, you can get new ships. So which one would you choose? And is it mine? Right now I'm flying the USS coconut. I'm not going to lie, but I'm not going to get a printed version of it. Not for that price. I got to say, Mm-mm-mm. well, and depending on what model ship it is too, right? I mean, exactly. If you're stuck with yeah. the entry level ship, you're not going to want to get that printed. You're going to want to bling it out. Bling baby. I like that. Did you, did you just bling baby me? Well, you just hundied me a minute ago with the two hundy, so I had to do something. All right. Yeah, I'll allow it. Thank you. Well, today we're going to consider 
the very last of the feature films starring the cast from the original Star Trek, Dan. And um, this is one I'm surprised we didn't get to sooner. But like I said at the top of the show, with 700 hours of Star Trek, um, there's so much you want to talk about and you don't always get to it all right away. No, that's true. But wouldn't it be over 700 hours of Star Trek? Let it go, Dan. (laughs) Okay, yeah. You're right. I mean, we've talked about so many things. You know, we're on episode 133, so um, it was bound to come up sooner or later. And and like you, I'm surprised it has not come up sooner, but I'm glad we're talking about it now. Getting a chance to rewatch it after a while really gave me some new insight into the movie. Um, And... I'm looking forward to the discussion. I think there's going to be a lot of cool things that we're going to bring up and and talk about and maybe things that we had not thought of until recently. Well, you know, I think it's really interesting because we rewatched the motion picture and kind of came at it with a fresh set of eyes, whether we intended to or not. And it was a bit of a different experience for us as adults than necessarily it was as children to some extent. And now when you look at the Undiscovered Country um, and when it came out, clearly we were already adults. But right. we're in a different phase of our life at this point. You know, whereas before we were just excited for a Star Trek movie. We've, you know, kind of looked at this with a with a more critical eye with regard to the story and the plot and the time with which it was created. And well, we should say right off right off the off the bat, th- this still is a fantastic movie, right? Oh yes, absolutely. We love this movie. It's it's one of the best of the Star Trek films, without a doubt. Um, so people are probably going to hear our discussion and wonder, you know, do, do we like it? Do we not like it? The movie's the movie's awesome. It's it's it is a it is a Star Trek movie. Um, without hesitation, I can say that. Um, so, and I think you feel the same way. I absolutely do. You know, it's. You don't have to wonder where the Star Trek is in this movie, although there are some elements that kind of make you scratch your head a little. We're going to talk about that in a bit. But let's look at the rough plot real quick. So the Klingons have essentially screwed themselves. They've they've overmined, they've overtaxed their resources, and now their their key energy production facility, a Klingon moon called Praxis, has exploded, yo. And the Klingon Empire has roughly, what, 50 Earth years of life left to it? Correct. And so they need peace. They need peace with the Federation in order to ensure their survival. And that's where our intrepid crew comes in. And and thus starts a, a large conspiracy to start a war with the Klingons and sort of wipe them off the uh, wipe them out of the galaxy. Fair? Surely not surely not. <laughs> Sorry. You could spend the rest of the podcast answering questions with just George Takei quotes from this movie. You have problems with it listening, mister? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I screw that line up, but you get the gist. <laughs> I do, Superfan One Seven Hundred One. Great job, great job. So let's let's travel back in time a bit. A little slingshot around the sun. You know, when they were talking about this movie and when they announced the director, what was your reaction to the fact that Nicholas Meyer was coming back to Star Trek to sit in the director's chair? Uh, it was good and bad. You know. <laughs> He did such a great job with Wrath of Khan and his involvement with the voyage home was was a reason to be excited. But we've also talked in the past how he's not or wasn't a Star Trek fan at the time. And is that something that could could cause issues? I mean, we certainly saw it in other Star Trek movies later on down the road. <laughs> Nemesis. Um, but uh, um, with other directors. <laughs> but <laughs> 
but you know, Star Trek two was not that long ago in the, in the grand scheme of time. So I was excited because we had seen the success that he had had before. Oh, I was incredibly excited because, you know, uh, still even now today in, in 2018, as we record this, Star Trek 2 is my favorite Star Trek movie. I've seen it more times than any other movie I've ever watched. And it's just, it's it's comfort food. You know, yeah. it, it soothes my Trekkie soul, even though it's not the most Star Trek of movies. It's a great movie, man. So yeah. when Nick Meyer was announced as directing this, I was I was on board from from the get go. I'm like, oh, we got we got Meyer. All right. We got a movie now. I was I was very excited because, you know, let's be honest, it's a significant step up from Star Trek V, The Final Frontier, which as fans, we have to admit, was not received well. Oh, I've we've said on this podcast that it's not a very Star Trek V is not a very good movie. And and it and unfortunately, it wasn't directed very well with William Shatner. And and you got to wonder if the folks at Paramount decided, you know what? And no offense to, to Mr. Shatner. Maybe they said, you know, we got to bring a real director in here and take care of this. This this last original series movie with someone who's who's um, got a reputation for good Star Trek directing. Um, and that's what they did by bringing in uh, Nick Meyer. Well, and not only did they bring in Nick Meyer to direct, I mean, they had a script that that was pretty interesting. It was it was a bit of a departure. Well, much like the original series would change things up from time to time. You get a serious story and then maybe something a little more lighthearted. You'd get some space battle and then you maybe you get a whodunit. We kind of get this here in the movie franchise. You know, Star Trek II was uh, well, a story of vengeance and, and survival. Star Trek IV, it's lighthearted. It's the mm-hmm. one with the whales, as everyone knows. And then this one becomes a whodunit with political intrigue. So, you know, I, I think it's true to the the spirit of how the original series was produced in a way as far as writing. And that made me really hopeful. You know, it's plus Klingons, man. Lots of Klingons. Lots of Klingons. And I think one of the things that's interesting about Star Trek VI is we've we've talked about this Star Trek myth for a long time is the odd versus the even numbered films. You know, two and four are fantastic. And then, you know, three and five have issues, even though I love three. Um, so we're on an even number. So that's, you know, that's got, we got that going for us, which is nice, right? <laughs> which is nice. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, you know, when you you introduce the fact that not only do you have an even numbered movie and you have a great director and a great writer and a great producer in Harv Bennett. And then you add the fact that there's Klingons all over the place. Right. That That's enough to make, you know, even the most diehard of Trekkies go, oh, I'm so excited. <laughs> and, and I was. And you know me and how I feel about the Klingons. Um, I was really excited about this. Um, so let me ask you this. This is not one of our central questions, but I think that it's important enough to address now since we're talking about Klingons. Is this possibly the best portrayal of Klingons in the Star Trek movies? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, well, you hit me with a curveball there, right on the arm. A little split uh, finger fastball for you. That's all right. Um, you know, oh gosh, I would have to say mm-hmm, this is this is kind of a this is kind of a, my way to get out of answering. Up until that point, yes, I really have to think about how they did some of the things in TNG um, with the Civil War. And and stuff like that. And even even maybe a little bit with discovery um, to I'd really have to to think about it a little bit more up to this point. Yes. Without a question. Uh, Absolutely. Um, What about for an answer? What about in the movies? Because we're talking about the movies. 
In the movies, absolutely. I mean, there's really not a whole lot in the other movies that are that have a lot of Klingon involvement other than three. There's a little bit in one. I mean, that's just barely anything. And three, there's there's quite a bit. And uh, five. Five, eh, yeah, five. I, five is terrible with Klingons. So let's we'll, we'll say that right off the bat with uh, rock band Klingons. Yes, as you like to say, That's, um, yeah, heavy metal tribute band. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So yeah, without I would say without a doubt for the movies, best portrayal of the Klingons. We get to learn a lot more about them than we're used to seeing. I think might be a good thing to say. Also, yes, I agree with that. Uh, for me, I think this is the best portrayal of Klingons since Errand of Mercy. Um, for a number of reasons. Uh, first, we see different types of Klingons other than just the warrior class. And this is where I think this movie gets Klingons right. And TNG gets them haplessly wrong for seven seasons. And so do the rest of the series, um, with the exception of Discovery, possibly. Um, we see Klingon diplomats. Uh, you don't see that, you know, very often, with the exception of Kalar. Um, we see Klingon doctors. When was the last time you saw a Klingon doctor, Dan? Dr. Pochma. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it teaches us that there are people in the Klingon Empire who do more than just, you know, bang their heads together and, and take out knives and batlets to, you know, uh, <laughs> let the blood of their enemies, if you will. <laughs> you know, th- they're a society with, with different roles. And, and you know, clearly they've got to have an engineer because somebody has to restore artificial gravity. And I, I think it's a more rounded look at Klingons. And then you get Chang. And I'm going to come right out and say it right now. I think that Chang is the best Klingon since Core because he is as considered, he is as thoughtful, he is as calculating. But you get Christopher Plummer, man, and he just elevated that entire thing from the moment he was announced as being in the movie. He is, without a doubt... It's not even close. He is my absolute favorite part about this movie. He is amazing in this. They got a Hollywood legend to play the uh, the the biggest nemesis. Oh God, I keep saying that word. Um, in in this movie with Kirk, his portrayal is so well done with General Chang. And you're absolutely right. I would agree that he is the best Klingon since Core. The way that he he holds himself in every scene is is just absolutely spectacular. There are not enough good things I can say about Christopher Plummer in this role. And I'll tell you, I think we may have talked about it a little bit last week. When that original trailer first came out and it was the Enterprise um, moving uh, – the camera moving around the Enterprise and they had splashes of the original series episodes on the hull – and the voiceover was coming across. I originally didn't know that was Christopher Plummer. And when I did, I, f- I mean, I fell in love with it anyway. But just the, the, the way that he talks during that trailer and then to find out that he's actually going to be in the movie was something that I just I was so excited about. He's fantastic in this. I think that the Chang is one of the most fascinating characters, you know, in, in when you look at the original series, both in in TV and in movies. Because he he really is the best adversary for Kirk. And, and honestly, I think he's the best adversary for Kirk to go out on in this movie, since it is the last, you know, original cast movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think if they put another actor in this role, it's not the same. Chris Plummer gives kind of the the theatrical type performance that Ricardo Montalban gives in Star Trek II, you know, where he really it, it really is a performance. He's not just in the movie. I mean, 
I look at Chang and I don't see Chris Plummer. I see General Chang. I, I yeah, look at, that I look at Khan and I don't see Ricardo Montalban. I see Khan. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's that kind of he elevates it that much. That's a great comparison because you know every movie has to have a villain, and if the villain's not done right, it's I don't think it's taken as seriously. Um, Khan, of course, you know, that's 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 the the be all end all whatever the phrase is uh, for for villain is is Montalban's performance. Chang is just. You know, we, how many times have we said nobody else could have played this role? This is a perfect example where that really means something. If you got anybody from Hollywood to play him, it would not have been as powerful as as Plummer. Um, and and not only his his acting performance, but the way he looked. He was he looked like a Klingon. That patch bolted into his head. All those little details like that. The little tiny ponytail he had in the back of his head, and he had ridges in the back of his head, which we didn't see very often because he was bald for the most part. Just just so um, amazingly done. The other thing I, I I think that Chris Plummer adds to this movie, whether intentionally or not, I think it reigns in Shatner. And it forces Shatner to be smaller with his acting. And by that, I mean, well, uh, let me jump back for a second. In Star Trek II, Khan and Kirk are never in the same room together. That's right. So Kirk is always, you know, essentially talking to Khan over the view screen or over comms. And in, in filming, you know, Shatner's usually talking to a wall or probably somebody reading script lines. So Shatner can be as big as he want to because there's nothing to react against. Mm-hmm. In Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, there are a lot of close, intimate scenes with Chang and Kirk. Yes, they do talk some over view screen and over comms, but that whole dinner aboard the Enterprise, I think, is is really some of the best scenes between the two of them because they're forced to interact with one another. And it causes Shatner to not be so big and so Kirk, so TV Kirk. It's a more intimate performance, and he's he's got to look more inside himself because he really matches Plummer, you know, line for line and, and with intensity. And I think it's it's some of his best work is Kirk in those scenes with Christopher Plummer. Yeah, and the one that comes to mind as soon as you brought that up the, is the very first scene when Chang comes off the transporter pad and says, "It's I've so wanted to meet you, one warrior to another," and Kirk is just like, "Right, that's a great." introduction of how these two are going to uh mingle with each other so to speak throughout the rest of the movie uh and and you're right it does real it does reel him in because uh, you know not to again i said this earlier not to be mean about mr shatner he's not the biggest name in this movie um and i think that somehow transposes into his performance during the film yeah i think it makes for a a much more restrained and off-center Kirk because Kirk's mm-hmm. not comfortable in this movie. You not know, as Cap- Captain of the Enterprise, Kirk is Kirk's the man. Kirk is in command and and in the center seat and he's he, he's he's knowing what he's doing 100% of the time. And he's thrown off by the fact that he's got to go on this mission that, you know, Spock essentially vouched for him, which we'll talk about shortly. And and now the Klingons are are on board having dinner, which is really kind of uncomfortable considering that um he's not a big fan of Klingons. Uh, I, that's an understatement. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's interesting to see how he, it's, it's kind of, he kind of pushes his, his frustration on other people. Um, now you said, we're going to talk about it in a second, but 
it, it might be deserved on Spock because, you know, when he's when he leaves the bridge after the first communication with the chancellor, he's under his breath. He's like, I hope you're happy and stuff like that. So he's he's kind of a kind of a jerk in that aspect of it. And it's because of that uncomfortableness, I think, that we're seeing things that we normally wouldn't see with the Kirk character in this movie. I was going to say Kirk's kind of bitchy. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. And I know exactly what that's like because I have to deal with you every week, man. So absolutely, I can agree with that. Wow. Yeah. It looks like you can walk to work next week. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So let me ask you this about Chang because, Mm. uh, you know, for me, he's, you know, if core is number one with me and he is, Chang is kind of like 1A and not maybe like a hair width apart from core. But let's examine probably a more fair comparison uh, since – this is both from Star Trek movies. What about Chang versus Krug from Star Trek Three? Which one do you think is the better performance of a Klingon? Um, well, I'm going to preface it with saying this: I, I, Plummer's the better performance, uh, without a doubt. I love Krug. I, I've always I know that you and I differ on that opinion. However, I will say. With regard to Krug and Christopher Lloyd's performance, I've told you before, it took me half the movie to realize that it was Christopher Lloyd playing the character. The makeup was fantastic on him. And when I realized it was when he had a long speech and all I could see was Reverend Jim from Taxi because of the voice. With that being said, you can't think of Krug without thinking of Reverend Jim from Taxi. So that kind of hurts it a little bit. Does that make sense? It's exactly it makes sense because from the moment he opened his mouth in Star Trek Three, all oh. I can <laughs> I've come a long way for the power of Genesis. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yep. Um and I love the I think I think the character is great. I love I love the way he is in that movie. He's got a lot of humor to him, um, but he's got a lot of ruthlessness as well. But there is always that little side thing that, oh my God, this is this is Dr. Brown and, and Reverend Jim. Um, so it kind of, I don't know, takes away is the right word. Christopher Plummer, you can say, oh, he's the guy from Sound of Music and he's a Hollywood legend. You don't think of that when you're watching Star Trek Six. You don't think of Christopher Plummer, as you said, as anything. You think of General Chang, Yeah. where I don't do that with uh, Commander Krug. No, I, I am in complete agreement with that. For me, uh, I, I think that, yeah, Chang, uh, I'm sorry, Krug is okay. I, I don't have a problem with Krug. Um, I just, I don't like the character. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think that, I, I think he's, he's not great as far as Star Trek goes, but again, just me, uh, we've, we've established on many occasions that I have issues. <laughs> Correct. Star Trek issues or m- issues with the, just all around. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so the other thing we see in this movie, and again, we're going to preface this and say, we love this movie. It's one of our favorites. Um, there are some odd character developments in this movie. And I think that's, that, that's a, a fair statement, but by any means, because and I'm going to start right off with Kirk because his is some of the most weird, um, his outright hatred of the Klingon seems out of character. Yes. I get that they killed his son, but Kirk essentially is, is, is racist in this movie. And I, I kind of have a problem with that. It's very different seeing how he feels about the Klingons from the original series and the first couple movies, even though there wasn't really a lot of Klingon intervention until David was killed. But And I think that that element of what happened to his son may have changed 
his thoughts. So you're absolutely right. He's racist in this. I mean, he let them die. The whole moon has exploded. They got 50 years of life left. He doesn't care. He's like, whatever, let him die. Spock, what are you doing? You big jerk. Um, it is very unkirk like, but at the same time, we can't get in his head and see exactly what he went through or how he felt from the time that David was killed to here in his mind. Maybe he doesn't think he's being a racist and, and he thinks he's, you know, he wants them to suffer like he suffered. It's a tough question, but it is definitely not something that we're used to seeing with the captain. Yeah. And I mean, I, I get that he knew David for all of, I don't know, 20 minutes uh, before <laughs> David went on the Grissom. Um, so, you know, I, I get that. But I mean, we've seen Kirk, you know, come around and, and be that that uh, that better human you know, that we all hope that the future is full of in in situations that that have been as tense. So certainly he hasn't lost a, a son, but I mean, Kirk was always Kirk's the white hat, right? You know, he's, yeah. he's the guy who prevails. He's the guy who shows us. You see, Timmy, hatred is bad. <laughs> you know, we have to you understand know, other cultures. I'm going to bring up something from the original series, which shows that here he is completely out of character. Day of the Dove, they have that alien creature, you know, filling the room with hate vibes, but he's the one that comes around. Even though he's being manipulated so that they all hate each other, he's the one that still is able to come around and figure out a way to 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 find peace, so to speak. And it is a complete opposite here. He doesn't care about peace. He doesn't care about anything about the Klingons except having them all die. And and Kirk killed the Klingon that was responsible for his son dying. So the fact that he would carry this grudge against the entire race just seems a little out of character for me personally, you know, because Kirk is evolved. Mm-hmm. Now, and we see him evolve in this movie, the very end, you know, he, he, he comes full circle in this movie with his hatred of the Klingons to understanding what the importance of peace is and bringing them all together. So he does come full circle, but for the, for the most part of the movie you're absolutely right it is a little bit something that we're not used to seeing with him yeah and then then there's spock because spock kirk's best friend uh, pulls an end run on kirk and doesn't even talk to him oops it's, yeah he drops this you know oh by the way hey we're gonna be the olive branch um <laughs> we're, we're gonna go pick up the klingons we're gonna bring them to earth dude you know and that just strikes me as so outside of of what would might normally happen with Kirk and Spock because they are, they're like brothers. They're brothers and they're best friends. And this movie for me is the one that Spock is most different. in. we see so many parts of Spock that we've never seen before. That whole end around thing is obviously one of the biggest ones. Other things, which may be a little bit smaller, but are very different, but powerful and work is how pissed off he is at Valeris when he knocks that phaser out of her hand. You can see the fury on his face and the forced mind meld on her later on. Two things that we never have even thought about seeing unless Spock was on, under the influence of spores or something like that. This was Spock, and it was something that I wasn't used to seeing. Yes, that's uh, those are great references because I hadn't even thought about that and thinking about you know, the odd character developments with Spock, but you're right. Especially when he puts her through that mind meld, which is its own kind of violation on some level. Exactly. And then he's affected by it afterwards. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I I could understand where it would be, you know, a a challenge. I can understand where it might affect him, but um, he, he appears to have regret. 
Absolutely. And that's different for Spock. It is. It's very different. I'm going to I'm going to talk about one small thing about Spock. We you and I talked about this a little bit during the week when we were preparing for the the show today is one of the things that I've always had a little bit of a problem with in the movies and it's 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 just because basically the the people have aged. They've gotten older. So, you know, looks change a little bit. A lot of the movies for me Spock doesn't look 100% like Spock. Um, I think of TOS Spock when I think of Spock. And and in the movies, it just looked different. I don't know if it was the ears or the makeup or just the way that Leonard's face aged. In this movie, there are several scenes where he looks exactly as I remember him as TOS Spock. I don't know if that makes any sense at all, but it's something that I really liked seeing because I can be watching Star Trek four, Star Trek three. And I'm like, you know, he just doesn't have that, that, that Spock look that I'm used to seeing when he's sitting at his science station. But in this one, several scenes where it's like, Oh my God, that's, that's the TOS Spock. I love and remember. Interesting. That's a, I hadn't considered that before. I'll have to go back and watch it again. Like, yeah. like I won't do that anyway, but, um, <laughs> and then there's, you know, other Starfleet officers, you know, you can, and I'm just going to name off a couple of examples and we can talk about them on mass. Um, you know, there, there's Scotty with uh, talking about how uh, he's pretty sure that Azad Bor killed her father uh, in, in a very unflattering way. There's mm. other Starfleet officers like, uh, like one of the admirals at the, uh, at, at the briefing at the beginning of the movie, who's worried that Starfleet will be mothballed. Clearly yep. she has no idea what Starfleet actually does. Um, there's a, uh, a group of people within Starfleet planning the assassination of, the, of their own Federation president to start a war. And it just, it, it seems to me to be the, the Star Trek movie that takes the biggest deviation on Starfleet itself. If that makes sense. It does, because I think that there's been, I, I used to do it myself when I start first started becoming a fan. What are the differences between the Federation and Starfleet? And I can understand people getting new to the, to the genre, confusing the two and, and knowing what one is and what the other is and what they do for each other and how they relate to each other. It shouldn't take place in a movie like this. And that seems to be the case. Um, it is it is curious. There's a lot of curious things. Um, just some of the way that some of the crew are on the Enterprise during this movie is something that we're not used to seeing. Um, uh, the tra- when the when the Klingons leave the transporter and you get those two the two officers and they're just talking to each other and 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 insulting the Klingons as they leave. It's not something we're used to seeing, and it's like wow, okay, the Starfleet's completely different than what we're used to seeing here. So I can agree with what you're saying. Absolutely. It's um and now again I, I feel like we keep having to come back and say we love this movie. I mean, it's a great movie. Mm-hmm. There's just some really odd choices that now looking back, you know, what uh, 27 26 years after the fact just really kind of strike us as a little bizarre as we look at it more critically. Absolutely. Yeah, we do love this movie. Now let's talk about our friends over at Mission Log for a second. They kind of do the same thing with every episode that they talk about. They talk about an episode, they do the, the the recap of what the episode is, and then they spend a whole section talking about the parts that were kind of weird about it and what they liked or uh, what they didn't like and, and the mistakes and stuff like that. I don't think there's any problem pointing out the quirkiness, the quirky things that we see with this movie and still be able to love it as much as we do. And we haven't even gotten to the things that I really have a problem with in this movie. So I, I don't think it's a problem at all. To be talking well, about it, but and Mission Log is a great podcast. We should try to be more like them. Uh, we should, yeah. <laughs> really should. That's an inside joke for those of you new to the podcast. <laughs> that was the first piece of feedback we ever received on Trek Geeks uh, three years ago. So, um, so this movie is 
it, it's a bit of an allegory to the the fall of the Soviet Union because that happened, you know, in the in the late eighties. Um, and, and it's a little bonk bonk on the head. You figure this takes place, you know, shortly uh, uh, right after the era of Glasnost and Perestroika, ushered in by Mikhail Gorbachev. And the Klingons here, they are, I mean, a direct stand-in for the Soviet dictatorship and the Soviet Union. Um, because the Soviet Union itself, um, when they, essentially when they broke up the band, um, went through something not dissimilar. And I think that it's hard to watch this movie and not keep that in the back of your head, especially if you lived through that piece of history. Well, actually, it's a great bookend when you think about it. Think about the original series and the Klingons. Uh, I think it's a great way that they were able to wrap up the original series stories by having these Russians uh, as the central theme of the movie. I agree with that 100%. I agree that it's bonk bonk on the head, but I also think that it's done in a way that works and is not too over the top. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, I suspect we're going to come back to that in the central questions in just a few minutes. But you know, it's it's something to keep in the back of our minds. Let it mm. uh, let it simmer a little bit. Um, percolate. Per- ooh, percolate like coffee. Mm. Yum. Yum. Um, I do have to say that one of the things that works for me very well and still makes me a little teary eyed to this day is the entire bit just before the end credits where they're signing the logbook. You see the signatures. Initially, they wanted that to be the signatures of the characters, but um, somebody, probably Harv Bennett, I'm not quite sure. I'd have to look it up. Had the presence of mind to say, no, it should be the actors because, you know, they're sort of closing the chapter on this, on this crew. And it, it was just brilliant because you see these names, you know, being signed across the screen and it, it makes you a little emotional if you're an original series fan. Uh, a little emotional is an understatement. I'm going to be quite honest with you. I watched this. Uh, I watched Star Trek six over the course of a couple of days during the week. Cause we had the bad weather here in new England again. Um, and the other night I was finishing it up and that scene came on and I'm watching the signatures all come across and tears started when Leonard's name came across the screen. It still hits me that hard with him. Um, none of the others. It's like, Oh, I miss D and I miss, I miss Jimmy. But, um, his name, coming across the screen it just it just hit me like a truck and i also got to say william shatner of course being captain kirk was the last signature to come across his signature on screen don't look nothing like the signature he put on my photo at stlv yo (laughs) (laughs) it's gotten a little shorter (laughs) a lot shorter he's let's just say he goes for an economy of effort now when he signs um Plus, it's legible. It looks like it says William Shatner on the movie. That's all I'm well, going to say. Mine's legible. It just doesn't look like William Shatner. <laughs> can't say it online either. Can't say it on the podcast. You really can't. Um, so let's talk about a few things that didn't necessarily work for us. And again, keeping in mind, I know what your big thing is, and we're going to talk about it in the central question. So if you save that one for the end, sure. what, what other things don't necessarily work for you as far as this movie? There's some weird things that happen that we've never heard of before and, and we've never seen again in this movie. And it's it's done in a way to make it a major plot point. The one that stands out for most the most for me is firing a phaser on the ship when they're in the kitchen and Valeris shoots the cooking pot where the mashed potatoes are in and they stay in the form of the pot and then the alarm sounds. Huh? What? Are, what? <laughs> Well, first off, those have to be the gummiest mashed potatoes on the planet. They need a new chef. <laughs> yeah. Oh, maybe it's Riker. 
Uh, you know, you never know. Well, yeah, because uh, you can't make an omelet either. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that one. That's that's such a huge question mark for me because we never ever see that again, and we hadn't seen it up to that point yet. Um, and we've seen phaser fire on starships before and after this movie um, was, and it just seemed to be a convenient thing that they added in so that they could have a uh, part of the a part of the plot that they needed to answer for. Yes, I agree with that. Um, I, I'm going to go ahead and throw in one of mine, and that is the slow clap. <laughs> you know, the, well, at, yeah. at the end that has his arms stuck way out in front of him and starts <laughs> clapping like, you know, he's never clapped before and starts the slow clap. It's like, all right, guys, I get that this is a staple of the 80s, but it's 1991 now. Um, <laughs> we're, we are past the slow clap. I just, I find it painful you know, they could have done end of this, gotten out of that scene in a number of different ways, but it's, this isn't the Karate Kid, okay? Oh, wow. You're welcome. Oh, very, well, very well done. I'm going to ask you, uh, I think there's another one that you have a very big issue with, and uh, I'm just going to preface it like this, and then I'll let you answer me. I'm willing to bet money that you have a problem about that in the movie. That would about be money. <laughs> money. Oh. <laughs> It's like, well, he's uh, maybe I missed something, but a problem. No, with that. no I get it. Okay, you, yeah. How could Scotty buy a boat when there's no money in the future? Yeah, and and in that very movie, we hear that there no there's no money because McCoy would pay real money to have Chang shut up. Yeah, um, it's just minor inconsistencies like that that make me go, oh, well, ah, ee, ee. Oh. But, uh, <laughs> what else you got, Dan? Oh Lord, what fools these mortals be! It's it's hard to it's hard to come up with things without getting to my biggest issue with the central question. But uh, um, it's not a problem with the movie. But but this is something that we also talked about this week: is how they changed the ending for the release. Yeah, it's a huge, huge portion of the film that, with the changed ending that we didn't see in theater makes it even more a powerful story. And I can't understand why they didn't put that in the theatrical release. Okay. So for those who don't know, when Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country premiered in theaters, it had all of the scenes with Rene Auberginois, who later would become Odo in Star Trek Deep Space Nine, chopped from the movie. So there was no Colonel West. There was no Operation Retrieve discussion in the Federation president's office. And more importantly, there was no reveal that the assassin at Camp Kittimer was actually colonel west in klingon makeup i know right when you saw it in the theater you were left with the impression that the klingons tried to assassinate the federation president and that was it you had no idea it was renee underneath all that makeup because that was never exposed nor did they go nor did they make the line this is not klingon blood um (laughs) you didn't hear it now when the movie comes out on home video i bought it on vhs the weekend it came out i think i paid about 40 bucks for it at the time and I'm watching this, and I'm like, "All right." And his, what, what's this scene? What the? Yeah. What, Renee O'Bergen was in this movie. Uh. And then you get to the end, and it completely changes the tone of the movie. It deepens the conspiracy. To be honest, I think it makes it a better film. And why it wasn't that way in theaters, I will never understand. Cutting that out, I think, was a huge mistake because it 
you just said it makes it so much more powerful when you realize that it was the high brass and Starfleet that were plotting this whole thing and were actually doing it. I mean, he was he had he had the president in his crosshairs. Uh, it's amazing that they did that they they did it the way they did. It's so much better a movie, in my opinion, with the Renee scenes because it, it really it's it's like a slap in the face type of thing. I think it's great. Um, one other thing I wanted to make mention of, because you actually said something about it, is the Klingon blood. Everybody talks about the Klingon blood with Star Trek VI, and it had to be pink so that it wouldn't get an R rating, which is kind of amazing when you think about today. How I mean, they could have been done all kinds of – all of those things plus more with regular blood, and it would have been fine, I think. Um, I don't have a problem with the fact that it's pinkish purple, um, but – We've heard for decades now how people are still mad whenever we see Klingons die and the blood's not pink. It's like, come on, people, let's go. Get over it. Really? Come on. <laughs> this is not Klingon blood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 So, so Dan, um, as we consider our central questions, wrapping up our discussion on Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, I want to start with this one. Now, obviously, we know Nick Meyer uh, directed, you know, this, this movie had a, a, a key role in its, its story. Um, and we also know that he was named early on as one of the producers for Star Trek Discovery. And so it forces me to ask this question, does Star Trek Discovery get some of its DNA from this movie as far as Starfleet? Um, there's, uh, it, it's something I, I keep thinking about is, is we keep, you know, going back to this movie and, and thinking about the season that just finished, Mm-hmm. But uh, I'm interested in your thoughts on this. Yes, I'm going to try to answer this, uh, and I'm going to answer it without giving away any spoilers, because as everyone knows, Trek Geeks does not give Star Trek Discovery spoilers. Um, it does. I think it definitely does get some of its DNA from this movie. Um, I can't go into a lot of detail of why I think that without giving away spoilers, but I think it's very apparent the way that the Klingons are in Discovery and their thought process that it is tied together um of course the klingons and discovery take place oh gosh what is it it's probably 10 20 30 years or so before star trek 6 but i think that definitely there are some seeds that are laid in discovery which kind of come back with star trek 6 it's kind of like reverse dna if you think about it because discovery has been filmed after star trek 6 but i think with with nick being involved i would be very surprised if we ever were to talk to him and he said, oh, no, we didn't even think about Star Trek Six when we were talking about Discovery. I think it definitely had discussion. Well, I remember, you know, in, before Discovery premiered and there was the panel at, uh, at, at Star Trek Mission New York or, or whatever it was, that con, and, and Meyer was there. And there were reports that, you know, there were influences from, from the movies that he, that he was going to, to, to use. And I'm forced to, to conclude that that this is one of them, the way that Starfleet is, um, the way it's not necessarily um, overly positive, necessarily. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that there is at times a darker element that they must consider, especially since in, in Discovery it was a federation at war. So I, I, I'm forced to conclude that, yeah, I, I think there's, there's really strong influence uh, on discovery from Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. I get that it takes place later in the timeline, but it was produced certainly decades before. And it's interesting to see some of the choices that occurred for discovery. It makes me 
think about them a lot more now, especially from a production standpoint, now that I've watched Star Trek six again. So you see, you see similarities in, and it's unfortunately bad similarities and not bad as that's a bad similarity, but the things that they're doing are bad. We see this group of people in Star Trek six that are taking things into their own hands as in Starfleet and how they want to assassinate and start wars. And it's not very different than some of the things that uh, people are trying to do in discovery as Starfleet officers. Uh, that similarity is an eerie one. I think. I agree with you. And then, um, Here's the question you've been waiting all episode for, and you've been dying to talk about this, and we're going to give you the floor here after I ask the question, and it is this. Does this movie seem more dated than the other Star Trek movies? You know, we've talked about this all week, and I know I'm going to uh, probably piss off a few people, one of which is our good friend Dan, uh, one of our admins over on Camp Kittimer. This movie is so incredibly horribly dated. It is it, it is by far the worst of movies to stand up against the test of time. There are so many things that I have problems with with this movie when it comes to being dated. Now, back when we first saw it, it was awesome. Great special effects, great acting, great everything. Looking at it now, the special effects are awful. The uh, the the ships miniatures are clunky when they're moving around. The sets are cardboardish. Um, the acting is stiff, except for Christopher Plummer. Uh, there are just so many things that stand out to me in this movie as aged and dated more so than when you see an old 80s style movies and people have the 80s wardrobe and the and the Jake Cisco sweaters and stuff like that. I'm sorry, I love the movie. It is so dated, it sometimes takes away from what I'm watching. Because I'm like, oh my god, I can't believe it looks that bad. Starfleet Headquarters, the the, the dining room, um, uh, redress a set much. I mean, it's just, I, you know, maybe they were cutting quarters for budget or whatnot. I don't know. But I just think that um, even the bridge itself of the Enterprise, which is sacrilege to say, I just think look awful. I just, I just, I, that's the only way I can say it uh, and be honest about it. Um, we, we, we talked about it a little bit uh, in the car this week, and and I think you were surprised to hear me say that. Um, but it is, it is horrendously dated when you look at all of the other films. I think I gotta say, sorry. I hadn't considered that before you brought it up, and now that I've watched the movie again, I, I see where you're coming from. Absolutely. Um, I, I think that it's perhaps the political intrigue. Um, and the way in which the dialogue is structured around it that kind of dates this movie a little more than the others. Because mm -hmm. I think it is kind of, you know, that bonk, bonk on the head allegory to the Soviet Union. Um, I, I, I didn't want to necessarily admit it, but I, I have to say you're right. Um, I, I think that if I look at even Star Trek The Motion Picture, which was made, you know, in 1979, you know, so <laughs> yeah. Oh, so yeah. years before, and it it holds up better uh, in in its timeline, I think, than Star Trek Six does. Um, it, it, and again, it, we it, love this movie. Yeah, we love the movie, but you're absolutely right. Star Trek One, the special effects and stuff like that are uh, <laughs> light years ahead in my mind of what we saw in this movie. I mean, a perfect example is um, when they finally hone in on the on the Klingon bird of prey, and and the first torpedo hits it, and then the Excelsior starts firing, and the ship actually looks like it's wincing in pain before it starts blowing up. And 
point, that's a familiar looking explosion of that Klingon ship, but I digress. Um, and another Klingon scene is when the Chancellor's ship is coming about. It's kind of like it's not like really turning more than like flipping. And it looks like that somebody just like took the model and was like flipping it with their hand. It's just I understand special effects back then are, are different. I talked recently about how I love movies today that even if the movie's horrible, if the special effects seem seamless, it's something that I'm going to enjoy watching. Special effects in this movie are not seamless. Um, I will say the explosion of Praxis and the wave is gorgeous. But other than that, there's really not much that I can think of that really make me go, wow, that's a good scene. I don't have the problem with the special effects in this movie that you do. I think they're I think they're fine, especially when I have to compare it to the movie that happened just before this, because mm-hmm. the effects for Star Trek Five are ten times worse. <laughs> um, and, but you know they, what? And, and they look ten times worse. But you know what? For me, Star Trek Five, as bad as as it is, holds up and is is not as dated as Star Trek Six, in my opinion, which is uh, which is like s- unbelievable to th- even say it. But for me, it's it stands up better over the test of time, I think, than what we see in Star Trek Six. I don't think it does on effects. I think that's true of everything else. Yes. Yeah. For, for my book. Yep. I hear you. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, and then lastly. Do you feel that this movie was a fitting end for the original cast? I do. And I'm going to preface it with this. If you look at how the um, TNG movie with their last movie was definitely not a fitting end, in my opinion. So when I look back and see this, I think it is. It's a it's a great Star Trek story. We have all of the crew involved and we get to see them pretty much say goodbye uh, at the end of the film. And then, of course, there's the there's the uh, signing the logbook, like you said. I think it is a fitting end because it's important that it be a true Star Trek story. And Star Trek six is a true Star Trek story. So I would say, yeah, it is. Yeah, I, th- I think you you hit it right on the head when you said they get we get to say goodbye. Yeah. Um, you know, at the end of Nemesis, we weren't sure, although we said goodbye to data. Sorry, Donna. Um, <laughs> um you and we kind of said goodbye to Riker and Troy in a way. Um, we knew that this was the the last voyage of our original series crew, so um, the, the, there was that closure. Although I hate that word, mm-hmm. so uh, I think it was a fitting end. You know, like I said, we keep saying we love this movie. I do love this movie. I do love that they get to go out on such a strong note. And uh, like I said, that signing that logbook really is just the perfect way to 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 say goodbye to that cast one more time. So that's yeah, kind of, I agree. Absolutely. I agree with you, man. Well, Dan, one more thing I feel great about is five year mission. They are every ounce of music you hear on Trek geeks. We love those guys. We are so grateful that we get to use their music in each and every episode of both Trek geeks and discovering Trek. And we want everyone to head on out to five year mission.net. Seriously. I mean, just stop putting it off, go on out there, listen to their music. And we guarantee you're going to love it and want to buy all their albums. And then you're going to thank us, go, oh, Bill and Dan, thank you so much for recommending five-year mission as so many people have done already. So that's fiveyearmission.net. Get yourself some tunes, yo. We are less, we are, oh no, we're a little over a month away from year four. Math is just hard. About, just about five, five and a half weeks maybe. I know what I'm doing that day, April 27th. I'm clicking that purchase button. So it's not going to be very hard. You know what else isn't hard, Bill, is, is really appreciating General Chang in this movie. He loves Shakespeare 
And oh boy. We, we talked about that a lot. You know, he quoted it all the time. How many quotes are there in this movie of him quoting Shakespeare? You know, our revels are now ended, Kirk. Great line. I love it. Great line. I am, Great line. I am constant as the northern star. Another I'd give real money line. if you just shut up right oh, now. Cool. Wow, that's really good. I like how you tied that in. Even though it wasn't in the movie, I, we talked about the trailer. For at the end of history lies the undiscovered country. But my favorite, and I think everybody's favorite, cry havoc and let's slip the drums of war. Uh, you, you didn't. I did. Have fark. Cry, have fark. And I was trying to spin in my chair when I did that. <laughs> I'm spinning in my chair, and pretty soon I'm going to need an old priest and a young priest. <laughs> I, I, I. Uh, anyway, five year mission. Dot net. Please download all their albums and 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 become a huge fan because we are for sure. Dan, next week. We're going to have another crossover episode from Discovering Trek, and this time it's going to be a little different. Uh, that's the rumor. Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, this week over on Discovering Trek, we're going to be dropping a special off-season episode to talk to the New York Times best-selling author Dayton Ward. Uh, among other things, we're going to talk about his new Discovery tie-in novel entitled Drastic Measures, which we certainly recommend to everybody. And speaking of tie-ins, just a few weeks ago, we dove deep into the classic TOS episode, The Conscience of the King, and spoiler alert, the events from that episode are a huge part of his new exciting novel, so we're thrilled to talk to him. Uh, we can't wait, and we sure we are sure that you are going to enjoy the discussion next week on Trek Geeks, your independent Star Trek podcast, Bill. Uh, looking forward to this one big time. I mean, we're going to talk more than just drastic measures. We're going to talk about novels in general. We'll talk about uh, how a fan becomes a writer, and, and maybe we'll talk a little bit about the problems presented by canon. That's just off the top of my head. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it, Dan? It sounds awesome. I can't wait to do it, man. I, I, it's going to be great to talk to him. I love it. And now, of course, we want to say that for more great Star Trek discussion, you can check out our friends at the Tricorder Transmissions online at thetricordertransmissions.com. So many podcasts over there, Dan. Um, and I subscribe to them all. <laughs> um, so I, I, I can tell you firsthand, if you're a Star Trek fan, and you probably are if you're listening to this show, um, they have something for everybody out on their, their podcast network. So please check out the Tricorder Transmissions. And of course, for all the news on all the Star Trek's yo, please visit our good friends at treknews.net. For now, this has been episode 133 of the Trek Geeks podcast. We do hope you all live long and prosper. Give every man thy ear, but few thy coconut. Little Hamlet there. Wow. Uh, uh, okay. Shock. Do, 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 do.
We've been getting <laughs> we've been getting some great comments for those. That might have to be a daily thing or a weekly thing now. <laughs> We're gonna run out of Michael Jackson songs. <laughs> or do duets anything. anyway. Yeah. We can do it with anything. anything. You can do it with anything. I've learned so much in commuting with you. I had no idea that that you could really do all of the Michael Jackson dance moves from a seated position. I'm a good dance seater. Uh, let's try that again. I'm a good seat dancer. <laughs> a dance seater. Hashtag dance seater. Yes. Yep. Yeah. If I'm if I'm stationary, uh, yeah. I'm. Ooh, whew, look out. But if I have to get on my feet, look out. <laughs> Not in a good way. Don't be standing in the damage path. No. <laughs> what you drinking yeah. today? Uh, I'm I'm back to caramel hideaway like I was last Sunday. Thank you for the sample, by the way. You're welcome. Did you enjoy it? I did. I did enjoy it. This morning, I'm going with uh, Starbucks Graham. I'm sorry. Uh, it's the first time I tried it. It's not the best. It's not the worst, even though it's Starbucks. I'm not a Starbucks fan. I, I find I can't drink their coffee because it just it irritates my stomach. It, it doesn't so much irritate my stomach, but if I want to pay $7 for a drink, I'll go to the bar. <laughs> <laughs> and there better be a half a bottle of booze in there. <laughs> exactly. So that's not bad. I'll, I'll go I, back to my uh, I'll go back to my um, brown sugar crumbled donut or cinnamon sugar cookie tomorrow. Uh, Green Mountain Coffee. It's we good. love them. We love we, them. It's, we should hashtag we love them. We love them. It's admittedly it's one of the few great things to come from from Vermont. Mm, wow, okay. maple syrup is not one of them. Our apologies to all our Vermont listeners. Yeah, you're the ones that have internet. <laughs> wow. oh oh, come on, we live in New Hampshire, okay? Yes. We're entitled to give a little grief to Vermont, even though it's loving, kind of like that cousin you can't stand who only shows up on holidays. Our upside down brother, Vermont. That's that, Ain't that the truth? <laughs> yes. And their maple syrup is just dreck. I'm sorry. I, I don't even know if I've ever tried their maple syrup. Don't bother. You'll okay. ruin your taste buds for life. Okay. All right. I still got the the unopened can of Canadian that our good friend Brandon sent me. Um it's I wanted tasty. to I wanted to wait until after the move before we crack it open. So uh I think um this fall we'll be having that. Wow. Here's hoping it, it ages perfectly. Oh, it's stored nicely. It's it's syrup. It's in a can. It's in a can. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen syrup in a can you have to pry open. With a bottle opener, yeah. Or a can opener, yeah. I should say. Yeah. 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 You could try a bottle opener, I'm sure. <laughs> remember, remember the old uh, high C and Hawaiian punch cans? You had the notch on oh. each, yeah, that's on the top and on the opposite corner to get it to pour. And it would come out like one of the water fountains at school with the like the little. <laughs> yeah, that's what this reminds me of. This can. Yes, yes, yes. It's it's, it's nice. It's a nice can. I like it. No, it's and and the syrup is good. I've had it. I'm looking forward to trying it. I'm sure I'm, I'm going to, I'm by the time this drops, I will have already been a guest, but I'm going to be on his podcast Monday and uh, I'll have to tell him that I'm looking forward to tasting it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm just, you could just open it now and just guzzle that stuff right down. I don't want to do that. I want to save it. You've got, you're, you're getting ready to drink maple coffee all over the place. Why don't you just add some real maple to your coffee? We're, we do have some New Hampshire real syrup that's already open. So why would I want to open something else when I have something to use? That's just not prudent. Come on, Bill. I don't know what to do with you. You're such an idiot. Yeah, let's just open this and waste it. Okay. You didn't enter into the record that you had New Hampshire maple syrup. It's not even your house. <laughs> it's, okay. So, all right. You know, we lo- I love Donna. Love my sister. Love talking about her here on the podcast because she 
for some reason thinks Alex Trebek was in uh, uh, insurrection. But anyway, I digress. She does refuses and will never and does not use real maple maple syrup. She only uses that garbage blech, stuff like Vermont made or Mrs. Butterworth or something like that. Or Aunt Jemima. Yeah. I, I, I just find that very weird. It is syrup-like substance? Yes. Yeah. With art- only, Why? Ugh. I don't know. The only thing that's syrup-like system, substance is it's syrupy. I just, I don't, I don't get it. I just, I just don't get it. Are you sure? Are you sure one of the two of you is not an alien baby, like dropped off by aliens for an ex- a long-term experiment? I can't confirm nor deny that. Huh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. I don't even know who you're defending, but I'm going to say thanks. I'm not defending anyway. I figured the <laughs> two of you are so radically different. That, that's true. That, yeah. that one of you has to be like from a different planet, literally. Hmm. Maybe, maybe she saw Alex Trebek on that planet. Oh, maybe it's a planet full of Alex Trebek's. It's like the, Trebek 7 or something like that. that is the name that of the That would planet. be the nicest planet in the galaxy. Well, hello. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Half the of the population we were looking for was Ipswich clams. <laughs> half of the population has mustaches. The other half doesn't. <laughs> Do you remember oh. when Alex Trebek used to host High Rollers? Not at all. It was uh, essentially a, um, a a game show based on playing craps. Of course, they couldn't say that on television. Right. But it looked like a craps table, and there were these giant oversized dice, and you would answer questions and and earn the the ability to roll the dice to win money and prizes. Mm-hmm. And he did that years before Jeopardy. Not ringing a bell. Wow. Yeah. Your 70s game show foo is not strong. You can ring my bell. Oh, wait. Spotify. Oh, that's right. God damn it. (laughs) We can't do anything fun now. Well, (laughs) some would say when you're here, we never do anything fun. But But that's just me. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. And besides which, I don't think our our listeners need to be assaulted with your version (laughs) of Ring My Bell. (laughs) And and that popped into my head because there's a commercial on TV now with that song and it's on a lot. And I heard it. Oh, really? Yeah. I don't know what the commercial is. Knowing TV around here, it's probably for some stupid local car company because it's all it seems to to advertise. <laughs> Peter's Honda. <laughs> oh God, Peter's of Nashua. <laughs> Jeez, wow. Okay. Oh, if I ever if I ever meet the person who does that voiceover, I'm going to slash their tires. Wow. That okay. Now that's on recording. That's good. That's not too smart there. It's not like I said I was going to assault them. I'm not going to do that. I'm not a violent person. Hmm. Wow. What did wow. you say? I see how it's going to be. Ah. Yes, sir. What, Dan? Yes, would you I... stop swearing, Dan? Stop it. Wow. Dan, stop. Stop, Dan. Gee, we got to record. Cut that out. I'm just going to insert a big, long string of bleeps there. <laughs> <laughs> That's, wow. That's, you're mean. <laughs> <laughs> That's the power of the edit, right? It is. That's true. Power of the editor. Uh-huh. <coughs> I made myself laugh so hard that I had to cough. <laughs> Are you ready, funny. jerkhead? Yes, I am. Dumb face. <laughs> dumb face. You dumb face. Yeah, your face well, is dumb. Yeah, well, I'm rubbering your glue. 
So whatever I say, or something like that, you know, it's back on you. So <laughs> I don't know the saying. Yeah, clearly. <laughs> All right. Slam your coffee mug down. Let's go. I hear you drinking. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> 